Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University, where we bring Western's research to the world. I'm your host, Roger Hudson. And I'm your co-host, Ariel Frame. Today, we have a guest from the Medical Biophysics Program. Her name is Lauren Smith. Hello. So Lauren Smith is a medical biophysics PhD. Um, can, uh, you, you're studying placental imaging and metabolism in fetal development more generally. Can you speak a little bit about how you go about studying this more? Yeah. Sure. So what we do, uh, we focus on MR imaging, so using MRIs to look at the placenta. And we want to look at placental metabolism as a marker for placental health. Uh, because that's not something that we can currently do non-invasively. Non-invasively as in with humans. So I'd imagine that you're doing these placental imaging, the MRI, uh, within animal models then to try and mimic the the types of placental growth and development that occur in humans. Yes, we use guinea pigs. Uh, In what capacity? I know that your medical biophysics may be less on the animal side. In what capacity do you get to interact at all with with the guinea pigs and What's your involvement when the guinea pigs come in for uh, for your scanning? Well, I'm mostly on the imaging side and imaging development side. Um, I run the scanner. Uh, we have people who work with us who are really great at handling the guinea pigs. Um, but I, I hook up the monitoring equipment so we can make sure that the guinea pigs are happy and healthy inside the scanner. And then pretty much more on the other side from there. So more of the data management and I guess really operating more of the uh, biophysical portion of this uh, uh, machine here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you have any really cool findings or any, I guess, hypotheses that you might be able to generate from your research? Sure. Uh, So what we look at is pyruvate metabolism. We do this through a process called hyperpolarized carbon-13 imaging. Uh, which we don't have to go into details about, but okay. we are one thing we're really interested in is comparing a Western diet to a control diet in these animals to kind of mimic the effect of um, obesity and high fat, high sugar diet in humans, and how that can affect pregnancy uh, pre-birth. So we expect that in our Western diet animals that will have poorer placental health and function, and maybe more a more anaerobic. Uh, so low oxygen environment. So when we're looking at metabolism, we'll see different pathways kind of dominating in our Western diet animals. Wow. I guess just to clarify, the Western diet, what what would that consist of? You mentioned sugar, high fat, and things like that. So the Western diet is both high fat and high sugar diet. Okay. Compared to the control diet. Okay, which would be more of a healthy diet, an appropriate diet for development. Yeah, it would be more what... Health Canada would recommend that we eat, but probably most of us don't. The food groups, as they say. Yeah, so the Western diet is more like a fast food three times a day? or it's Yes. Basically, the guinea pigs are eating McDonald's all the time. Wow. And this is while they're pregnant with the offspring that you eventually go on to test? Or is the testing and the MRI all occurring within the, the pregnant, uh, the mothers there? So, yeah, we image the mothers because we are doing all pre-birth imaging. Um, but they're on a lifelong diet, so they're very exposed to it their whole lives. Oh, so even before they're pregnant, they have this diet, and they're pretty yeah. much, yeah, very interesting. So you're both looking at the diet during pregnancy and, uh, you know, 
up to pregnancy. So, I mean, have you considered or has it been looked at potentially, you know, having that diet up till pregnancy, then putting them on a normal diet or vice versa? Normal diet, then switch them over to the McDonald's diet <laughs> during pregnancy. I think switching them over during pregnancy probably wouldn't have that much of an effect because your body is actually pretty good at being resistant to things um short term at least okay i think it's really the chronic exposure is where we see problems we could probably switch the other way uh to normal diet during pregnancy that might help us actually because we have a pretty high stillbirth rate in our western diet groups which makes it hard to image because this happens before we get a chance to look at the fetuses of course i mean is there i imagine you're like oh Western diet, that's kind of what we might see commonly in North America, maybe with a lot of people who may actually get pregnant, and you seeing stillbirths. Is our levels of stillbirths actually higher now in North America where we have this diet frequently, maybe in the States where they have it even more? Um, I've mostly looked at Canada to put my research into context mm-hmm. here. Fair enough. We have seen increased incidence of stillbirth within the past 10 to 20 years. Um, So people hypothesize that could be due to this increase in Western diet and obesity and poor metabolism, but it could also just be due to the fact that we're better at detecting it. Because if there's a stillbirth early, you you often don't know that you were ever pregnant. So it could be that we're just better at detecting pregnancy and then your people are more aware that stillbirth has happened. Hmm. So I guess it can go on both sides of the coin. And of course, uh, the diet wouldn't be the only uh, influence on whether, I guess, stillbirth would become a factor. All these other factors, of course. And actually, just before we got on to the point, I was about to ask, so what are the effects of the Western diet on the placental development? But I guess you pretty much answered that. If you're getting stillbirth, then I guess it's very, very bad. (laughs) It's bad, yeah. Other things we see is that the placenta starts to fail, and then the the fetuses become growth restricted, so they're not developing properly, basically, mm. and they're too small, and that's also really bad because these ones can survive, but at least in humans, when we see growth restriction, they have problems way into their adult lives. They're going to have higher incidence and higher health risks for many diseases. Wow, and that underdevelopment, that almost seems, I guess, so- somewhat similar to the effects of the fetal alcohol syndrome on the developing uh, uh, individual. Yeah. So it seems like your your method is going to be added benefit to your everyday ultrasound. I think a lot of people are uh, are aware of, you know, you have a baby or you're pregnant, uh, go get an ultrasound. You can look at the baby. Um, but what are we seeing that we're not able to see with the ultrasound? Cool. Good question. So hmm. ultrasound for a routine pregnancy is usually sufficient. And usually you say, see the baby, you say, okay, things are going well. But for the cases where there are problems, you can't really see that on an ultrasound. So we want to use uh, metabolic imaging using MRI to look at more than just the structure. We want to look at the function. And this is something that's really not done clinically right now. So that's kind of where this research comes in. We want to develop a clinical tool to measure placenta function because that's going to 
indicate fetal growth and development. Um, and we want to do that with imaging so that you don't have to be invasive and interfere with the fetus environment. So I guess we're adding just a lot more information than we currently have with ultrasound. Whereas the ultrasound is just the visual aspect of the outside of the fetus with the um, actual MRI, you're able to see much, much more depth in that. Yep. I mean, you can see some things with ultrasound for all the ultrasound people out there. Don't get mad at me. <laughs> you can use Doppler. You can see blood oxygenation, but it's more difficult. You can get higher quality images with MRI. Um, ultrasound depends on where the baby is sometimes. Um, if it's hiding behind the placenta, you're out of luck. Okay. Um, so that's not a problem with MRI. So it's just different information. And this would be for extreme cases where you're worried about the baby's health, not for your everyday pregnancy. Hmm. So, uh, you know, that actually begs a question. Um, I'm not sure that I'm that clear on what the placenta is. Like, I, I have an idea somewhere in there with the baby doing something to help the baby. <laughs> uh, but I'm not actually sure where it's situated. And now I know the baby can hide behind it. <laughs> so yeah. so what, what is it doing in there? <laughs> well, uh, I guess that's maybe a little misleading what I said. The placenta is attached to the uterine wall of the mother. It's just that if it's attached at the front, then it's obscuring the baby. Mm. Um, so it's an organ that provides food, uh, nutrients, not food, and oxygen to the baby and can expel waste from the fetus. And it's really important because it's the only link that the fetus has to the mother and to the outside world. So I guess the, the overall goal of, of your research then would be, I guess, to move the knowledge that you gain from it clinical, you know, I guess as more of a diagnostic tool in a sense to assist alongside the uh, ultrasound imaging and in that sense, or how would that, how, how would that match up or how would it uh, go about assisting that? So definitely clinical translation is the ultimate goal. We are working on, uh, we're going through a lot of ethics and paperwork right now and we're going to be imaging our first human patient uh, within the next year uh, because this hasn't been done before in pregnancy. Wow. Um, hyperpolarized imaging has been done a few times in uh, carbon-13 pyruvate specific imaging has been done a few times in humans but not for this application yet so really that's clinical translation is a long-term goal it's a long road ahead but I do think that this would fit in for those extreme cases where you need to know if the placenta is functioning. Um, the thing is that if, if their placenta is failing, it's much more dangerous to keep the fetus in that environment than to have an early delivery. Mm. So really, it would be a great marker for doctors to know that we're going to deliver prematurely because the baby is more likely to survive than if it's kept in this environment where the placenta can fail. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you said there's some extreme circumstances whereby it's really important to know uh, some information about the placenta and its health, so to speak. Um, and to avoid invasive techniques, you want to use your imaging technique where you don't have to really poke, prod, or go in there. How might you actually go in now if you needed to, if you needed to go in there? Do the, is there 
does this require surgery opening them up or just is you have to default to uh if if you're if you're going to investigate at all the question then you might as well premature induced premature birth what can you do if you want mm. to get that measure and you don't have your mm. incredible technique yet mm -hmm. uh probably a little bit of both i think if a doctor was to see a really small a really growth restricted fetus they might just say let's deliver it and you obviously don't want to deliver premature if it's not necessary because that's a risk to the baby Right now, if you want to look at things like metabolism, I guess you could do blood tests, but you can imagine trying to get a needle into the placenta or into a fetus is going to be challenging. It's moving around all the time. Mm -hmm. You're probably going to need some image guidance anyways. And if you miss, it can be bad. It's just, it's risky. It's necessary if it's life-saving, but imaging is a much safer option if possible. And are there any uh, outward signs that the placenta is having issues before um, the fetus is in danger? Or uh, what are the, um, I guess, diseases that are associated with the placental, placenta not being as efficient as it should be? Um, in terms of outward signs, like on the mother, you wouldn't really know, probably, until it was too late. Wow, so there's no way to detect this as of right now? No. Wow. I guess that speaks to how how essential it would be to have something non non invasive that you could do as a preventative measure for for everyone. Um, I'm wondering. This is an incredible idea. Where did the idea come from? How did you how did you land up in this lab, uh, working on this project? Well, uh, I became interested in imaging after undergrad. I wanted to do something more applied, and I was always always interested in the medical application of things. So that's what kind of brought me to Western and to the medical biophysics program. I didn't really think I'd be doing pregnancy stuff because that was never something I'd done in research or even really focused on in my studies. Hmm. But um, I thought I was really interested in the technique, this hyperpolarized imaging, because it's not very common. Um, and I think it's really exciting to be doing something that's so cutting edge and really being part of that development process. So I guess that's what drew me to the lab. Um, and then my project is really focusing on the technical development of it, which I enjoy because I'm really on the physics side more. So uh, I just, yeah, I guess that's what brought me here. And is the concept or, or I guess the process of the MRI imaging you've mentioned pyruvate a couple of times can you speak a little bit more about how that fits into your imaging okay so what we're actually imaging what we're getting signal from is this pyruvate that we inject into our guinea pigs uh, we do this process called dynamic nuclear polarization which means that we can get a high MR sensitive signal from this pyruvate using a carbon-13 molecule that we enrich. And so pyruvate is a metabolite of glucose, so it's in most a lot of foods, uh, and it's metabolized by every cell in your body, so it's a good indicator of metabolism. And then what we do is we inject these animals with pyruvate, and we can see the pyruvate in our images, and we can also see its metabolites, so we can see lactate, alanine, and bicarbonate. And when we compare the ratios of these metabolites, it can give us an idea on if it's a high oxygen environment, the organ we're looking at, 
which would lead to more bicarbonate expression. Or if it's a low oxygen environment, we would see more alanine. And low oxygen usually means something's going wrong. So this is not limited to pregnancy. This can be used in applications of looking at pretty much any organ function in the body and seeing um, if there's problems indicated by low oxygen and more lactate production. Wow, but, but you say that it's not too um, used, it's not too pre- prevalent within actual clinical uh, diagnostic techniques or anything like that. What, why, why might that be? Well, it's you need this machine called a, a hyperpolarizer okay. in order to get this signal or else uh, there's not enough carbon to really get an image. And there's not many of these machines, and they're very costly. Hmm. Um, They're mostly used for research right now. It's a new technique. Um, You could have said the same thing about MRIs when they first existed, or PET imaging. So I think eventually it'll get there, but right now it's just a really expensive machine that is not routinely used clinically. So no hospital is really going to invest in that right now. It's mostly used for research. There's only two in Ontario, for example, so that just shows you there's not really a lot of these around. So you're also very lucky to be able to work with the hyperpolarizer at your lab. Yes. Yeah. I've actually had a chance to to use, well, not directly do the hyperpolarizing, but bring animals to your facility uh, for imaging for different purposes and using this technique. Um, And I remember (laughs) physically the process of having the, waiting for the, pyruvate to be ready and then bringing it over to the machine was like uh, <laughs> quite a quite an interesting process so maybe could you give us kind of a brief outline of the, the steps that were involved there because I think I think that might be kind of interesting sure so what this hyperpolarization is in a brief explanation um, we're aligning the spins on the carbon 13 nuclei so that when we have them in the scanner, we're getting a stronger magnetic signal from them, which is what we use to create our image. But how we do this is we cool uh, the pyruvate down to almost absolute zero to 1.5 Kelvin. um, And then that kind of creates this environment that's hyperpolarized. But this is really temporary and these spins don't want to be aligned due to thermodynamics and entropy. So as soon as you take this and warm this up to a temperature you can actually put in a person or animal, um, and as soon as you take that solution out of this machine, it starts to go back to its thermal equilibrium. So that means we only have a few, less than a minute on the order of 40 seconds of time for this hyperpolarized state for us to get our image. So we have this machine that does this polarization. It takes about 40 minutes. Um, We draw the solution into a syringe and then we run as fast as we can to the scanner Mm. and inject into the animal that already has a catheter in. And then we press go on the scanner as soon as we can. Our sequence takes about 53 seconds and our, our signal decays pretty quickly over that time. By the end, we don't really have an image anymore. Wow. So that's another thing. It's it's not an easy thing to do. It's not just pushing a button. Um, but, you know, people are also doing research on the chemistry side and the physics side. So maybe we can figure out a better way to get this hyperpolarized state more stable or at least for a longer period of time. So there's a lot of development in this technique for sure. Wow, and I guess the the whole reason for that 
polarization, the hyperpolarization would be, I guess, to make it so that it's easier to create the image because by the time you, 53 seconds later, the image is gone, pretty much you're saying, right? Yeah. Um, to what extent or how much does the polarization really matter in helping you get the image? How much better does it make it? Well, the polarization, we need it really to get an image in a reasonable amount of time. The polarization increases our signal about a hundred thousand fold. So, wow. so if we didn't have that, uh, you would not really see anything. And to compare <sighs> to conventional MRI, we're looking at hydrogen um, ions. So basically water and your body is mostly water, but we still only get signal from one in every thousand molecules. And so even with that much water in your body, you're only getting signal from one in every thousand molecules and you can see a nice picture. But you can imagine when we're only looking at three milliliters of pyruvate, we really need that boost to see anything or else you would not really see anything unless you're imaging for like 40 hours or something. <laughs> I mean, uh, this. so when you said uh, this, this technique could be developed by the, the chemists and... Uh, to to make it a little bit uh, more convenient to do, uh, rather than having to wait 40 minutes to get a fraction of a minute of image, um, it kind of reminds me of like <laughs> the old photography <laughs> stand and pose for <laughs> I think like I don't know an hour and then they get one image and then you have to wait some amount of days for them to develop the picture and then and if then the you meet up with all your family the picture's ready. <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone comes and looks at the picture and now we like snap a selfie in like six seconds yeah <laughs> everyone looks you take 12 everyone looks at them those 12 were bad delete them <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I mean if it goes the way of photography then this could be something that we do very quickly at some point <laughs> for sure that would be cool I think there's a long road ahead but I think this technique has a lot of potential so I'm excited to see where this field goes for sure and like you're saying, it's still a very new technique. And like everything that's new with technology, the more it's used, and I guess the longer time goes on, the less expensive and the more um, accessible the technology becomes, right? So let's hope that that's the direction that uh, your imaging techniques go towards. So uh, with our last few minutes here, um, one thing I like to ask at the end of uh, a lot of our interviews is, we know that as a grad student, you work very hard on your work. And I know that when people ask me, how are you doing? I don't think about how my health is doing or how hungry or how tired I am. I'm like, is my project on track? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm one yeah. with my work. I become one with my work. So when people ask how I'm doing, I think, how's my work doing? But you are obviously a person and you do other things in your <laughs> life. So uh, maybe uh, you could tell us. Uh, do you have time to do other things outside of your direct research project? What do you like to do, uh, maybe involved with school or outside of school? I definitely have a pretty good work-life balance, I think. Um, something I'm involved with here at Western is UWO Dance Force. So I've been dancing my whole life, and now I still do it recreationally. And we put on a show every year, and it's a lot of fun. Um, I play squash for fun and go swimming, just stuff like that. Um, I'm also involved on the Schulich Grad Council, Grad Student Council. So I like to be involved in other ways and 
kind of be involved in student groups like that. It's definitely the best way to go about maintaining a healthy well-being in grad school. And I'm sure we all uh, know a thing or two about that, any of us in grad school at least. So uh, your work has been really interesting to hear about, uh, and I think that some of our listeners might actually want to hear a little bit more and read a little bit more. So if they want to find out more about you and your work and your lab's work, uh, where can they go? Maybe somewhere online? Yeah, we have a lab website. It's at www.schulich.uwo.ca slash Mackenzie Lab. That's M-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E. Lab. Fantastic. And I know, Lauren, you've shared so much um, about your research today, about the uh, imaging of the placental development and things like that. But um, anybody who does want to learn more about that can definitely go search up um, the website there. I'd like to really thank you, Lauren, for coming on the show today. Um, My name is Roger, and I've been joined by my co-host today, Ariel Frame. Uh, You can catch us Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on CHRW 94.9 FM. Uh, If you'd like to... uh, be a part of our show or get involved with uh, Gradcast at all, you can email us at uh, gradcastradio at gmail.com and you can check out full episodes and previous episodes on our website at gradcast.ca. This has been a production of the Society of Graduate Students and thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next week. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.